This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Thanks so much uh, for coming, everybody. Uh, I'm honored to be here today among so many luminary thinkers, but also among so many grounded and principled organizers who are here so obviously committed to doing the work. Um, I really don't take that for granted. Uh, it's, it's a really special space when we get to be around other people who are working to create more livable futures. Um, I'm very grateful to Ruth Wilson Gilmore for writing the beautiful foreword to this book, uh, Spectacles, and to Robin D.G. Kelly, who's sadly speaking concurrently in the other room. I would have loved to be there as well, um, writing, uh, for writing the beautiful afterword, or as he called it, an afterworld. Um, these two people have been touchstones, as Harsha pointed out earlier, for so many of us um, and have really helped shape some of the thinking um, in this book, as well as probably in many of the freedom movements that we're all collectively involved in. So, Rehearsals for Living is a book of letters, but not in a traditional way, perhaps. I wrote Leanne not knowing if I would send the letter, not knowing if she would write me back. Um, they're letters to one another, to Black and Indigenous movements that made us, and to which we feel accountable, to our ancestors long departed, and to our children and future grandchildren and theirs. Uh, through these letters, we weave the personal community and organizing history and longer traditions of Black, anti-colonial, and Indigenous struggle for the planet, for land, for liberation, beyond policing, prisons, uh, attending to life and living beyond the death worlds wrought by extraction, dispossession, and racial uh, carceral capitalism. It explores thinking with Gilmore's terms, um, abolition as life in rehearsal looking towards these tiny granular moments alongside the more large and spectacular riots and rebellions in which we're collectively practicing what freedom might mean. It's about world ending and world building. And it is also about what it means to think through and to think through together because so much knowledge is produced in community and in movement and in our struggles against multiple forms of violence, exploitation and dispossession. It's about how we can wage freedom in our interlocking struggles for Black and Indigenous liberation at the end of the world, and a book in support of all living things, about choosing life over death-making institutions, forms of governance, and modes of production. So I'm going to start a brief, with a brief reading of the book to start off with some of the, you know, some of the compulsion that, that, that led me to write her in the first place. Dear Leanne, can you hear me if I speak this way, or do I need to lean forward? Okay. Dear Leanne, about five years ago, I sat down with a copy of your book, as we have always done. I planned to flick through the first pages over my morning coffee. In the end, though, I stayed put, reading almost the whole text in one go, and was suddenly overcome with a strong feeling that I wanted to know you. Your words beckoned me to join you in what you called constellations of co-resistance, constellations that affirmed life and world-making in a time of acute racial violence. 
I'm writing to you a letter at the end of this world. From Cyclone Idai in Malawi, Mozambique, and Zimbabwe, to Hurricane Dorian in the Bahamas, the devastating forest fires displacing indigenous communities from the Amazon rainforest through to the Mishkogamang Ojibwe Nation in Northwest Ontario, our respective communities, that is, black and indigenous communities, are collectively positioned on the very forefront of the unfolding catastrophe. It would require a deliberate obfuscation to view the racially uneven distribution of harms that the climate collapse engenders as accidental. Even if we didn't take into account the melting of Arctic ice caps, rising sea waters, and eroded shorelines, desertification, and species extinction that are now nearly, if not totally, inevitable, the reality is that not only are an array of world endings already before us, they have already arrived. Our respective communities have borne already multiple apocalypses that were inflicted upon us, if unidentically, from the barbarity time of genocide, slavery, settler colonialism. The apocalypse is imagined, after all, in most Clastern Euro-Western tropes, settler tropes, in terms of the lack of clean drinking water, the destructions of the places we, they, live, the poisoning of the earth, inhumane and restrictive responses to people left hungry, displaced, in desperation. This is a condition that is already deeply familiar to our kin across Turtle Island and globally. You wrote about this in Dancing on Our Turtle's Back. By 1822, when many Anishinaabeg in the North and West were still living as they always had, we were facing the complete political, cultural, and social collapse of everything we had ever known. My ancestors resisted and survived what must have seemed like an apocalyptic reality of occupation and subjugation in a context where they'd had few choices. To remix Public Enemy, Armageddon been in effect. It is the apocalypses of slavery and settler colonialism that bind our collective pasts and presence together in the calamity at hand. Today, the racially uneven environmental catastrophes of the present are inextricably connected to the unfinished catastrophes of 1492, the two genocides at the heart of the Americas, to paraphrase M. Horvesi Philip, when a death-making commitment to extraction and dispossession took hold on a global scale. As we are confronted with the crisis of the Earth's viability, then, amid so many crises, I'm writing you so we can think together about what it means for us to build livable lives together in the wreckage. So this is the starting point, uh, really reaching out to commune in the context of a climate crisis racial capitalism, genocide, the ongoing police murders of black and indigenous communities that we've been fighting and organizing against uh, for decades and for generations. The way that black and indigenous unfreedom is tethered together within this history, which has also condemned our planet to near destruction. In seeking to understand the long histories of slavery, settler colonialism, and racial capitalism that has led us to the catastrophes at hand, uh, that thinking about what binds our pasts and presents also intertwines our futures. So I teach my son, who's now seven years old, was five when I was writing this book, that the earth is sick and that we have to make sure that we do what we can to fix it. Um, and I, I often tell him, you know, humans, uh, human, humans had made this happen, but then I have to stop and correct myself because it's not humanity that poisons so much earthly life, but a small and powerful minority of humanity and the order they have imposed on earthly life. As I speak to my son, I remind myself how necessary it is to move beyond the idea of thinking about human-related activities, what they call the Anthropocene, as the cause of uh, the climate catastrophe at hand. I'm thinking here with many others, Vishwa Sakar, Catherine Yusof, um, 
that the climate crisis is tethered to its origins in slavery and colonialism, genocide and capitalism. So again, we need to ask who is we when we talk about this we that had harmed the planet. The IPCC regards as the moment when anthropogenic activities began to increase the world's uh, carbon production massively uh, in the Industrial Revolution, which of course emerged from Europe and its settler outpost. It was quite literally fueled by the violently coerced labor of kidnapped Africans on lands from which indigenous peoples had been murdered and forcibly removed. If we, as Audre Lorde writes, were never meant to survive slavery, were never meant to survive colonialism in many contexts, not, she clarifies, as human beings, then neither were some of the discardable places on which kidnapped Africans labored, those indigenous lands cleared via the longest known genocide in human, the largest known genocide in human history, upon which the Industrial Revolution was built. So in Capitalism and Slavery, which Eric Williams, uh, Trinidadian freedom fighter turned prime minister, wrote in 1944, he wrote that by the 18th century, Barbados was already suffering from the inevitable consequences of slave labor and quick extraction of profit from the soil. The slave plantations of the colony across the entire island were geared toward the production of sugarcane, a monoculture. So by 1663, the physical environment of the slave colony was already described as decaying fast due to soil exhaustion. 1663, planters knew about the environmental impacts at the time, but it was understood to be a more profitable method. Speaking about the state of Virginia, Thomas Jefferson said, we can buy a later, an acre of new land cheaper than we can manure an old one. So if we think about binding these histories together, we know, of course, looking at the mortality rates in the Caribbean from the slave trade in Canada, in the United States, that black people were treated with the same disregard as the soil they were forced to labor on, worked literally to death while poisoned, positioned as an exploitable source of energy with indigenous communities when considered at all understood only as a barrier to access to the land. Again, our histories are bound together. Europe's colonization of Africa put into place the ecological crisis that we face today, the desertification of the Sahara, the salinization of the Niger Delta region, and the deforestation and the soil degradation caused by monocrops, which were imposed harshly on the lands that were not, excuse me, intended for white settlement. So it's not a metaphor or an abstraction to say that the violence of slavery, colonialism, and capitalism were and are apocalyptic violences for all of the planet's living things. Capitalism as a mode of production, racial capitalism as a mode of production, waged and wages an assault on life, human, animal, ecological, microbial. Europe's industrial revolution was accomplished by thiefing our ancestors' collective lives, labor, and lands, and transforming them into capital. The climate catastrophe was born not from mankind, not from we, but from the slave plantation, the settler town, the prison, and the reservation. So we should not be surprised that the solutions being forwarded by those in power, inheriting the traditions uh, of those who came before them, are more of the same. The border wall, the immigration detention center, the refugee camp, the open pit mine. And if our histories are bound together, so too are our presence, as we live, all of us who live here, uh, in, in the belly of the beasts. The horror story of our times is being written in the boardrooms of Wall Street, of Toronto's Bay Street in London, and the, in the London, New York, and Toronto stock exchanges. Canada is home to nearly 75% of global mining companies. So apocalypse is not a crisis with no author. Enbridge and Barrett Gold, Jeff Bezos, these are only a few of the authors of the crisis at hand. So I'm, I've talked a little bit about the kinds of histories that tether us together into catastrophe, 
But, you know, this is a book about abolition, so I wanted to speak a little bit about racial capitalism, imperial ecocide, um, and how this is all related to carceral governance, because really I think so many of us here are concerned with the importance of black liberation, indigenous uh, decolonization, uh, and, and the climate catastrophe at the same time, and abolition, as Ruth Wilson Gilmore and so many others really push us to remember, asks us to think about land and life at the same time as we're thinking about an end to all carceral systems. So abolition is necessarily connected to land, the defense of land, the defense of life, because the carceral system retrenches not only racial and economic differentiation and a politic of disposability, but the assault, the assault on the living things of this earth. So to be clear, I think we can make important theoretical reasons why black and indigenous liberation are connected, but even if these were not there, I think that the idea that nobody is free while somebody else's, while the boot is on somebody else's neck needs to undergird solidarity anyways, right? But I do think that caring and thinking about the relationship to land and abolition and anti-colonial struggle is a helpful way to think about uh, what we mean when we're talking about abolition, black liberation and indigenous uh, freedom struggle. So. Anti-colonial Senegalese filmmaker and novelist Ousmane Sembene says this um, in, a, in a documentary that I'd watched. They've never invented anything to make Earth habitable. Everything they do is to destroy the land. And he says this about European colonizers. So I'm going to read here from part of another letter to Leanne uh, to expand a little bit more what this means in this context. I've leaned in for a few days now to your gentle but firm insistence that the abolition of police and prisons must be a pillar of decolonizations, and that indigenous land-based struggles could, should, must be considered within what abolition demands of us. Land back, land back. In this crisis of the earth's habitability, your words are pushing me to think more extensively about abolition and land, about my own responsibility to you, to the place that I live. Your words are a necessary reminder that in addition to the role of policing in enforcing black people's unfreedom and perpetuating an economy that relies on a multitude of unfreedoms, policing has always served and serves still to sever indigenous peoples from their lands, from non-capitalist ways of relating to land and to all other non-human relations. That policing functions in the service of those who destroy the land, that one opposite of policing is land back, which is after all an end to the imposition of private property regimes and all the carceral technologies developed to enforce them. Everything they do is to destroy the land. Indeed, aren't all carceral sites and technologies at some level really about cementing the theft of land to cement its purported transformation into capital for some colonizer somewhere? African Nova Scotian and Mi'kmaq peoples on the east coast of Canada, alongside and in parallel to the environmental devastation of their communities, um, experience the extreme state targeting of our communities, our respective communities, uh, where large companies are facilitating our ongoing economic plunder. And so as we enter a crisis of the Earth's vulnerability, I do not see a contradiction between black-led abolitionist struggles against carcerality and the indigenous struggle for white settlers to rescind their purported ownership of the land. Instead, I see a site where struggles can, should, must, and do overlap. So what I'm trying to get at here is the relationship between black liberation and land back here on stolen indigenous lands and globally in terms of the broader project of abolition. As Robin Kelly invites us, uh, you know, making a really important intervention to think about settler colonialism and all colonialism um, across the African uh, continent and globally as about land theft. And this is something that's really crucial to keep in mind, both within Turtle Island, 
across the black global south, prison serves everywhere, among other things, of course, toward the destruction of land for the colonizer, for the multinational corporation. So there are some historic and contemporary examples of the ways that carceral has developed to retrench the possibility and the expansion of colonial land theft, of ongoing imperial plunder, including securing land privatization for multinationals in the places that black and indigenous peoples live around the world as well as here. So in, 19, in uh, 1900, in the Lagos Observer, it was written that forcible concessions of land in places where there are any prospects of vegetable or mineral wealth and oppressive land bills have left the natives of, this, of the soil hardly any control over their ancestral possessions. This is only a few decades after the Berlin uh, Conference or the so-called Scramble for Africa. To hold and keep African territories and peoples under European control, colonizers built a substantial network of prisons with technologies perfected in the coastal forts built for the slave trade, with technologies of forcible confinement and constraint that were developed over centuries of black enslavement. In Kenya, the settler colonial government, as part of a broader program of brutal and spectacular forms of violence, used detention to cement the process of massive land grabs that extended from 1890 onward. This violence, of course, was supported, um, as most global violences are, by the Canadian government. Much more recently, of course, we see similarly in Haiti, where John, when John Bertrand Aristide undertook land and labor reforms and a radical product, uh, project of land redistribution uh, uh, for Haiti's landless peasants with broad popular support was overthrown by a coup d'etat orchestrated by the governments of Canada, the United States, and France in 2003. As the land program and all other moves toward ending mass privatization and impoverishment were thrown out by the new brutal uh, puppet government that was brought in, the government would go on to police and incarcerate those who had tried to organize land and life otherwise. And of course, Canadian aid funding, much as the United States aid funding functions, provides training for Haitian police and prisons, as well as actually the presence of Canada's RCMP, Royal Canadian Nation, uh, Mountain Police, the Correctional Services of Canada. These are all Canadian exports which serve to contain and confine much of the Haitian population, preventing Haitian peoples from adopting less oppressive forms of land ownership and less exploitative labor practices. Everything they do is to destroy the land. The last point I wanted to draw on, and I don't want to go over time, so I'll try to reduce this, but um, is that we have been making worlds as long as Europeans and settlers have been destroying them. So originally I had wanted to organize this part of what I wanted to say today called um, In Defense of the Living. And I think really what we're trying to do in some ways with these letters was, was a defense of life and the living. So pr pol prisons, policing, and the racial, economic, and ecological ordering it upholds, including the brutality enacted on all earthly life, these are not permanent, of course, and not necessary, and we can and must build futures without them. And we have always done so. So I teach my son Lamar how white settlers only purport to own all of these lands, how these lands in which we live were in fact violently stolen from people who had lived here for thousands of years, were stolen from people who are here still. I teach him too that many of the same people purported to own us too, that many would purport to own us still. I teach him that there are other ways that the land has been held and loved and tended, that we too are peoples of the land if displaced, more lands than could ever be counted, even if our family has only spent two generations on these ones. That our peoples, black peoples here, have loved and tended and had kinship relationships to the land beneath our feet. And that the home space we live in and inhabit is a land of water protectors, of land protectors, whose struggles is in more than one way our own. So to me, thinking about all of this, 
under this rubric of in defense of the living, of rehearsals for living, links the struggle for the planet and the ongoing struggles that we're collectively a part of against policing prisons and borders. So, so many of the movements that we've seen in recent years and the uprisings in 2020 uh, were in defense of our dead, right? And of Breonna Taylor, of Ahmaud Arbery, of Chantal Moore and Nicholas Gibbs in Canada. But they are also, you know, part of what it means to be part of a defense of the living. So black and indigenous liberation struggles, rebellions, and collective refusals are interconnected, interlocking projects necessarily oriented towards life and human, animal, ecological, and microbial life forms on this planet. As Ruth Wilson Gilmore tells us, where life is precious, life is precious. So all world endings are not tragic, and there are some world endings that we should all be comfortable with, being comfortable with at the end of the world that racial colonial capitalism built. We are all engaged in asking one another, what does it mean to build worlds that affirm rather than destroy life? I believe that world ending and world making can occur and are occurring and have always occurred simultaneously. And our communities, particularly so many of us survivors of colonial uh, violence are quite literally post-apocalyptic survivors of world endings already and in many ways are positioned to imagine what the worlds we may build might be like. We see this with so many of our communities at the forefront of struggles to defend life and the living, people living in encampments, the hunger strikes inside of, inside of uh, prisons, detention centers, and the street-based rebellions and struggles to defend the land. Some world endings are necessary in order for more collective, life-centered, and wellness-oriented forms of world building to take root. Leanne often says that colonialism has been ending worlds as long as it has existed, and yet we've been continually building them. We are Black and Indigenous and so many other historically dispossessed people, steeped in histories and epistemologies that are, to think with Aimé Césaire, not only anti-capitalist, as in prior to capitalism, but also anti-capitalist, drawing from long-standing traditions that never submitted to the logics of racial capitalism. There have always been other ways of organizing and tending to life, many of which preceded and some of which will outlast the barbarism of the Western political order. I was going to end with another short reading, but maybe I'll save that for the end. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much, everyone. Ani kinawaya, gegavajin denoema, kinagatsi in the snabak ogaming the donjaba, negajawani megwadoda, vidasimusake nijishnakas, Thank you for writing me a letter. <laughs> You're a very good pen pal. <laughs> and it's so lovely to be here um, and visiting with you all tonight on Bodawatami homelands on the shores of Michigami. Bodawa in my language means he, she, they build a fire. And Bodawatami refers to the fire keepers of our peoples. There's a particular political meaning to holding this responsibility. But I'm thinking tonight of the work that fire keepers do for our people when we're out on the land. They're the ones that get up before dawn. They light the fires so that we wake up and there's light and warmth and tea boiling. They tend the fires all day long, putting kindling, logs, bigger logs, fewer logs, fanning the coals, 
carrying the embers to the next place so that all through the day we have a place to find sustenance, warmth, and light. They also cut the wood, gather the birch bark and tinder, find the flint and carry it. And during times of grief, they keep those fires going 24 hours a day. Where fires are lit, our people gather and they visit. Metaphorically, fire keepers do the work to keep our peoples together and being their best selves. And I know that a lot of people in this room are doing that work as well. If you've ever been camping in the pouring rain and someone in your crew has the wherewithal to light a fire under the tarp, you know what I mean. The mood of the camp shifts, people gather, there's hope that you might get back to the city alive once you have dry socks. So this is a similar thing, but on a different scale. It's also lovely to be spending time along the shore of Lake Michigan, Michigan, another special part of our Anishinaabek formation. We think of the Great Lakes as a sort of internal organs of the earth filtering and cleaning the water. And the shoreline of these lakes is just a fantastic fractile and generative space of overlapping worlds and world making. So I'm grateful to be thinking alongside Michigan and Miigwech Bodawatami in the kitchen and Mumpi Aki given Watched Gook. And of course, Miigwech to the organizers for having us and giving time today to rehearsals for living. My first reading is an excerpt from part three of the book, which is called The Summer of Revolt. Um, I was listening to a podcast um, by Millennials Are Killing Capitalism. And the title of that episode was Give Your House Away Constantly. And it, it was Fred Moten and Stefano Harney were revisiting the undercommons in a time of pandemic and rebellion. So I was listening to this and, and writing to Robin. I am hearing Moten say, home is never just your home. It's not an enclosure. It's not property with a picket fence and a guard dog. It is space created relationally, constantly visited by insects, mice, squirrels, bears, spirits, wind and rain, plants and medicines, and this visiting forms the network that is the container of home. So yes, we are homeless, not in the sense that we don't have a house, but in the sense that homelessness is, in Moton's words, quote, a condition in which you share your house, in which you give your house away constantly as a practice of hospitality, unquote. When practiced collectively, this builds the most beautiful responsive formation continually being remade and morphing to meet the needs of individual beings. There are requirements, however, for this to work. Requirements that the viciousness of white supremacy and the practice of colonialism refuse to fulfill. And so, as the old metaphor goes, 
the settler moves into the indigenous home, confines us to a closet, and proceeds to take ownership over the house, building a picket fence, acquiring a guard dog, and security systems. Ah. So in our practice of kindness and sharing and deep care, we will clearly outline our expectations and we will agree to share the space, take care of the space, and respect each other's decision-making processes, working diplomatically to negotiate solutions to conflict, we will enter a 2 deed relationship, to be clear. I'm drawn to the way Moten uses the term homelessness as a refusal of homelessness in one sense, as an assertion of homelessness in another, and then finally as remaking of what homelessness or home space means as conceptualized by black people. I use terms like self-determination and nation as a way of pushing back against the state and the forces of dispossession as a refusal of state definitions and Western political definitions and an assertion and remaking of those terms based in indigenous thought. Similarly, I use the word nation both as a pushback against colonial understandings of the word and as a way of affirming indigenous collective and relational formations as legitimate, more legitimate, I'd argue, than settler nation-state formations. It is possible in Anishinaabe understandings to hold sovereignty and jurisdiction over land while also affirming the sovereignty and jurisdiction and self-determination of others on the same space. And this requires an intense, intimate, and ongoing relationality and shared political understanding. In my mind, this idea of homelessness, to come back to Moton's term, also extends to territory and nation. Initially, I think of our nation as a home or home space. I understand Anishinaabe nationhood to be a formation of deep relationality with all of the communities of living beings sharing a particular time and space for their placemaking. It is a network cycling through time, a web of intimate connections where bodies are hubs forming vital pathways and links between plants, animals, rivers, lakes, the cosmos, and humans blurring the bodies, the boundaries between body and individual in favor of interdependent communal systems. Indeed, the spirits of living things are believed to transcend the enclosures of bodies and commingle in realms other than the physicality of the earth. Our home space is an ecology of relationships in the absence of coercion, hierarchy, or authoritarian power. So that's an excerpt from the third section of the book. Um, I'm now going to move to a short reading from, from the end, and then we'll discuss things, and we'll have a visit. In my language, the word for November is based on the word and it freezes over, referencing the time when the lakes freeze. For me, this has become a time to think about the apocalypse of climate change because our lakes don't freeze over now until January, if we're lucky. The ice road that used to go across Lake Rice Lake is no more. The clear, dense ice, the kind that forms before snow comes, is something I've only seen in the Lende. We know that the violence of racial capitalism has hurt 
Gabi Olmachan, winter maker, the spirit and being responsible for cold, and that they are struggling and suffering right now and out of balance with Neven, the summer, and Joanon, the south wind, the spirits that bring us summer light and warmth. November is also the time where I wish and yearn for the brightness of snow to break the gray monotony of the month. I like snow because it makes visible another power of water. Starting out as a single nucleus of desert dust, falling 3.5 feet per second, and folding one crystal at a time, forming a nation of stunning difference, propagating arms of crystal, offering the full spectrum of possibility, reflecting the full spectrum of light. I like the idea of one molecule practicing world making, combining with other molecules, falling into formation with others until the world is blanketed with snow carrying light and the world is transformed to our winter lodge. I like the idea of those same molecules reaching your cilia. Nibby, water, insists on internationalism. Nibi insists on us seeing ourselves outside of our own perspective. While the work we've done together in this book has focused on Black and Indigenous relationality, Nibi reminds me that radical imaginings and world-making must be international in orientation, reaching beyond Canada, beyond North America, and beyond the Atlantic not as an afterthought at the height of mobilizations, but as a foundational practice. This, of course, is something that the Black radical tradition, Black feminists, and Indigenous liberation collectives have been doing for decades. I'm reminded of the delegation of Indigenous, Black, and women of color feminist scholars and activists who visited the West Bank in 2011. They were shocked by the quotidian violence of the occupation and upon their return committed to the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement and to strengthen relations between their own organizations and circles of influence and the freedom fighters they had met in Palestine. Dakota scholar, activist and writer, Wazia Tewin was part of that delegation and she writes, quote, Sometimes it takes seeing the suffering of others to realize the full magnitude of our own suffering. As a Dakota woman in Palestine, I had the painful experience of witnessing the monstrous destructiveness of settler colonialism's war against the people and the land base. I told one friend that it was like witnessing a high-speed and high-tech version of the colonization of our indigenous homelands." Unquote. Both Davis and Wazitewin write about their knowledge of self, indigenous, anti-colonial movements and abolition deepening through their experiences with Palestinian resistance. More recently, Stephen Salida has argued for Palestinian struggles to take up a more central tradition in critical indigenous studies by laying the conceptual groundwork to link our struggles through settler colonialism, state violence, occupation, and indigeneity. In indigenous mobilizations in Canada, it is common to see Palestinian solidarity, most recently with local Palestinian support of 1492 land back lane and the support of the BDS movement for the Soviet mobilization. 
smaller grassroots organizations, including Families of Sisters in Spirit, a volunteer collective of family members of murdered and missing indigenous women, have issued solidarity statements for Palestinian freedom. These families know that freedom is a place, and as Ruth Wilson Gilmore says, that placemaking is a global practice. Miigwech. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.